This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turable land. And me, Shelby Trainer on Gadigal land. Today on The Health Report, why the number of organ donations and transplants went down over the course of the pandemic. Also, lymphedema. What is it? And why is it important to expand care for the thousands of Australians grappling with the condition? And if you've raised young kids in the age of smartphones, smart tablets, smartwatches, you might have seen them become transfixed by those rectangles of light. It can be an effective way to get a moment of quiet. But Shelby, you've been investigating some of the impacts that screen time might be having. Yes. And at the risk of alarming parents, it turns out screens aren't just a harmless tool. So I wanted to find out what families can do to limit or at least avert some of those potential harms. I love, Shelby, that you've done a bit of gonzo journalism here too. Here's the story. I'm going to go to Balloon Pop. That sounds fun. I'm aware I'm not exactly the target user for this app. There's a storm. But I was curious to find out what's capturing the attention of the kids I've seen toddling around with smartphones in their clutches. Some music. I've spoken to parents who've witnessed their kids getting completely sucked into games like this one, almost like they're in a trance. I will admit it's a little overstimulating. And if I'm overstimulated, then what's it doing to an impressionable toddler with a developing brain? If you look at a newborn baby who's looking around, they are intently focused on everything that's happening. They spend an enormous amount of mental energy trying to figure out what the rules of the world are. Professor Dimitri Christakis is the Director of Child Health, Behaviour and Development at Seattle Children's Research Institute. The reason I'm speaking to him and playing this children's app is because of a growing pile of research on the repercussions of screen time in early childhood. The overstimulation from watching fast-paced programs directly impacts brain development and leads to deficits in attention. But there are indirect ways in which screens work too. It displaces or they displace other activities that children would be doing that are essential to their development. Increased amounts of screen time leads to a reduced physical activity. Mary Bruch is a researcher at the Telethon Kids Institute. And it's reducing the amount of time parents are engaging in parent-child interactions. She's part of a team studying the early years of childhood and their examination of screen time came about in a strange way. The original study, when it began, was really focused on language exposure, so how much parents are talking to their kids. And the way we were measuring that in our study was through this, the easiest way I like to describe it is it's a Fitbit, but for language. So you know how a Fitbit would count the number of steps you take. This can count the number of words that the child hears and speaks over a whole day. But these Fitbit-like devices weren't just picking up words. They were picking up the distinct buzz of electronic devices. It provided the team with a unique opportunity they could use the data to find out how much screen time children were really being exposed to. On average, when children are six months old, they're being exposed to over an hour of screen time every day. When kids reach two years of age, that average jumps up to two and a half hours. And you're still getting kids who are being exposed to five, six hours of screen time in a day. We know that what we do for babies early on matters. 
We know that for tens of thousands of years, that was normal activities. And for the last 20 or 30 or so, we've been exposing infants to a lot of screen time that they weren't previously exposed to. But hold on. What about educational apps and videos? This game is teaching me the ABCs and how to pop balloons. Essential skills for a growing child, right? Well, according to Professor Chris Tarkas, it's not so clear-cut. You know, decades of research now have shown that children under 18 months of age don't really learn anything from screens. They don't transfer any of that knowledge to the real world. So, for example, if you put a 16-month-old child in front of an iPad with Legos, they can build something on the screen. But if you then give them three-dimensional Legos that look exactly like the ones on the screen, they start all over. They're not able to apply what they learned from the screen to the real world. He cautions parents against treating screens like any other toy. They're not engaging with it that way. It's commanding their attention in a way that no other toy that we know of does. So that alone tells you that there's something unnatural happening. All right, let's try another one. What we've been studying recently is toddler digital addiction, believe it or not. Some of them in particular find the screen so mesmerizing that they won't give it back, that they'll hold on to it in a way they won't hold on to other toys. Match the colors. In other words, kids aren't attached to screens like they're attached to their favorite teddy bear. It's a whole different kind of obsession. The same way Instagram is designed to keep you addicted to the screen, uh, Peg's Parade, if you will, or some other app that's designed for young children is designed to keep them addicted to it. The reality is, screens aren't going away anytime soon. I'm looking at one right now. You probably are too. Which means it's as important as ever to have clear guidelines for parents on how to manage screens in a world dominated by them. Interestingly enough, they actually fall under the 24-hour movement guidelines. So screen time doesn't actually have its own set of guidelines here in Australia. The current guidelines do not suggest any screen time for kids under the age of two. That includes apps and YouTube videos, but also TV. While for kids aged two to five, it's suggested screen time should be limited to one hour or less. So the question is... Is anyone really sticking to these guidelines? There's only about 12% of families that are actually meeting those guidelines. My personal opinion is that I think we need to revisit those guidelines and think about how we can work with parents to come up with something a bit more realistic that still puts you know, the health and development of the child first. And there are other factors at play. Studies show children of all ages from lower socioeconomic backgrounds are spending more time on screens. For some of those families, if, say, their average screen time is, you know, two, three hours when their children are quite young, it's really not realistic to tell them, you need to switch off all screens moving forward. That's just not going to happen. And, and parents are going to switch off and not want to listen to any advice it can be such a challenge to kind of navigate that. So I think we definitely need to provide advice that can be tailored to different types of families. So what would these improved guidelines look like? Can you trace the letter A? One key inclusion would be encouraging parents to take part in screen time. A is for Apple. So kids get a better understanding of how the digital world relates to the outside world. 
watching the TV and the parent kind of being that facilitator or teacher to translate that information, but also finding ways to incorporate what they're watching on the screen into other activities throughout the day. Another suggestion is that parents keep better track of what their kids are watching. If you've kind of just left your child sitting there with YouTube on, you could get five videos down the track and not necessarily know what's playing. And finally, when you're not watching the TV, turn it off. For very young children, it's really hard for them to switch attention between two tasks. So if you have a TV on in the background, even if you're trying to do a different activity with your child, their attention is split and they're not really getting the benefit either way. Mary believes these suggestions are more likely to help parents than a hard and fast one-size-fits-all screen time limit. The goal is to guide parents, not guilt trip them for falling short. We really need to come together more as a community and, and kind of talk more openly about this and share feedback between parents around what is working and what's not working for them and, and hopefully we can get to a place where parents feel a little bit less anxious and scared about what's going on. Mary Brush from the Telethon Kids Institute finishing off that story by you, Shelby Trainer. And for more on screen time, particularly when it comes to the world of gaming, you can check out this week's Australian story Game Changer on ABC iView. You're listening to The Health Report on RN. So, Shelby, we talk a lot about cancer on The Health Report, but we talk a lot less about the side effects of cancer care. And one relatively common after effect of cancer treatment treatment is lymphedema. Yes, I've heard of this. It's a swelling condition, right? The lymphatic system doesn't drain properly? Yeah, exactly. So lymphedema can either be primary, where it sort of starts spontaneously in a young person, but it's it's relatively common that it can start after cancer treatment, especially when the lymph nodes have been affected. So as you might have heard, you know, if someone's having cancer treatment, they'll often take a few lymph nodes out to check for cancer spread or because the cancer might have spread there, or the lymph nodes might be damaged by radiation treatment. And so then that's what helps all the fluid travel around your body. And in about one in five cases, uh, depending on the kind of cancer, what that can leave the person with is it's not draining properly on that part of their body. And so they can have a, a swelling of that limb, which is uncomfortable and can lead to some pretty severe effects if it's left untreated. Right. So that's 20% of cancer patients. That seems like a lot of people. How many people does that amount to in Australia? Well, the thing is, we don't really know. So the 20%, it depends on the type of cancer. It's more for some types. It's less for others. The numbers that we do have are sort of extrapolated from how many people we know get it after cancer and numbers from overseas countries that do measure it, like the UK. But advocates are saying we need much more visibility on lymphedema numbers and on how much it's costing the health system. It was basically like falling into an abyss. That's Monique Barraham. Ten years ago, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, but it was actually her experience after surviving cancer and developing lymphedema that led to her becoming an advocate for other people with the condition. Compared to the wraparound treatment that I had experienced for my cancer treatment, being diagnosed for lymphedema was just, um, it was a shock. I have come to use the term the lymphedema maze, um, and I think that pretty well sums it up. There really was no steps for me to take to find a place where I could get affordable assessment and any kind of affordable care. And all the while, your symptoms are actually worsening. 
which is incredibly frightening. Wow. So you're surviving cancer and then you have another condition that's so debilitating thrown at you. Yeah. And like Monique says there, the cancer treatment, we're really good at treating cancer with this wraparound care. We're less good at having a really linear progress for people who are then diagnosed with lymphedema. And I spoke to one of the key researchers in this space. He's Neil Piller from Flinders University in Adelaide. We actually had him on the health report talking about lymphedema way back in 2001, which uh, just goes to show that this is an issue that we've been dealing with for quite a while now. And he says, as Monique kind of alludes to there, if you can get to lymphedema early, it can be managed and held at bay pretty well. But if you don't, it can progress to being debilitating. The most important thing is in the early stage of lymphedema, it's pretty simple and pretty easy to manage with compression and skin care and activity and a little bit of self-massage and professional massage. But once lymphedema goes on, it goes through different stages. It goes from a fluid stage to a fatty, fluidy stage to a fatty fibrous stage. And then all sorts of other things start happening to their, their immune systems, for instance. They, they're unable to generate an appropriate immune response sometimes because the lymphatics are working really slowly. And that means a bacteria can get established in the arm or the, the leg or somewhere before the body's defense systems can come to it. Well, so it really can have long-term effects and people can end up in hospital because of it, right? Yeah, and this is the thing. So if it's treated well initially, it's relatively straightforward. If it goes untreated, it can develop into yeah infections, as he just said. One person I spoke to when researching this story was Queensland woman Helen. She had lymphedema and cellulitis, which is sort of uh, an infection of your skin uh, when your skin um, barrier is compromised and ulcers in her legs. And she really struggled to find appropriate care, but especially affordable care. This is actually kind of a yucky thing to talk about, but I think it really goes to just how debilitating this problem can get. Every summer for several years, she would end up with maggots in the ulcers in her leg. It was very dehumanising. It was also very painful because they, they actually hurt and they made my leg bleed. When I took the wraps off one night, well, I actually just had the uh, liner and a pad underneath. When I took that off, my leg was dripping with blood onto the floor. There was about six or seven years I was in and out of hospital and no one was willing to put me onto someone else who could help me. Please fund our supplies and some kind of transport to be able to go to our appointments because having to pay for everything ourselves is prohibitive. It's too expensive. Back in 2009, for me, I wished I would have been able to access the health system a lot sooner, get the help that I needed and be able to have a better quality of life because I rarely leave the house. Unless I've got an appointment or we do the groceries, I don't go out. Too painful and I get stared at. 
So to summarize, the treatments and the care are fairly simple and inexpensive. But once people get into hospital, that's when it gets really costly. Yeah, exactly. So again, about early treatment, the cornerstone of lymphedema treatment is compression garments. They help push that lymphatic fluid out of the limb. They also do need lymphatic draining massage and skin care to prevent infections. But like I said, there are various subsidy schemes in states and territories to help people afford the compression garments. And even that is relatively relatively recent, but they're not always easy for people to access. Our most vulnerable patients are still not able to access their garments because there aren't the clinical guidelines and optimal care pathways and referral pathways to get the patient to the clinics to get their garments. So it sounds like a complex problem. What are some of the solutions that people are suggesting? So there are a couple of things there. Professor Pillar talks about basically stopping the number of people that end up uh, developing lymphedema with better cancer care, which is in the pipeline that's already happening. With better cancer detection and treatment, that doesn't need to do as much damage to the lymph nodes during the treatment phase, which just reduces the number of people who would then go on to develop lymphedema down the track. He also says it's really important for GPs and other medical staff to be properly educated about lymphedema during their medical training so that they can identify it and then refer people on quickly because, as we know, early intervention is important. And then also this sense of having a national register. We don't actually really have solid numbers, which makes it really hard for advocates like Monique to make a case as to why there needs to be better public funding of this. If there was a national register, we would have the data to track it. We'd know how much it was costing the system and then make a better case for subsidising it. And lymphedema advocate Monique Barraham is calling specifically for, well, I'll actually, I'll let her explain. But in terms of incremental steps right here, right now, in 2023, I'm calling for a round table. Let's get the experts, the clinicians, the researchers, the decision makers, the consumers around the table, around the country to really start getting some sort of real collective idea and understanding of what is going on with lymphedema and to start building that roadmap to get us to those end goals. Every individual affected by lymphedema should have access to affordable, evidence-based lymphedema care. Monique Barraham, their lymphedema advocate. And changing topics, Tegan, we all know the huge impact that COVID-19 has had on the entire healthcare system more generally over the last three years. But what people might not know, and what I didn't know until recently, is that because of the pandemic, the number of organ donations and transplants has gone down. The numbers are starting to recover, but they're yet to return to pre-pandemic levels. And there are some really interesting reasons why. To discuss, we're joined by Associate Professor Helen Optum, who's National Medical Director of the Organ and Tissue Authority. Helen, welcome. Oh, hello. Tell us about what the impacts have been of COVID on organ donations. Maybe let's just start with the numbers. In 2022, we had 454 people who were able to donate organs after they had died, and that led to 1,224 people receiving organ transplants. And that's a slight improvement of 
8% in the number of donors and 4% in the number of people receiving transplants compared to 2021. But we're still about 15% down compared to 2019 if we take that as our sort of pre-pandemic year. There are a couple of contributors to this. When I first heard this, I wondered whether it had to do with Actually, I I started speculating on all sorts of things that it might have had to do with, but explain them to us because they're actually quite complicated. One of them is about just the ability for people to consent. Yeah, that's right. So I think the first thing to say really is donation and transplantation are really, you know, complex areas of medicine. They're very niche areas of medicine. There's many steps to the process and many interdependencies. And I guess it's no surprise with the healthcare system continuing to recover from the pandemic but still be under stress that, you know, the donation and transplantation programs are impacted. But one of the biggest impacts has been a reduction in the consent rate. So that's the, you know, percentage of times that there's families saying yes to donation when donation's possible in a hospital. And in 2022, we had a consent rate of 54%, which is quite a reduction compared to 2019 when we had consent rates of 62%. The hospital environment was really different during the pandemic. Did that play a role? Donations possible when someone dies in a hospital, usually in an intensive care unit, having been placed on life support It's usually in in a circumstance where um, someone's had a sudden illness or injury and it's quite a rare opportunity. In fact, there's only about 1,400 people each year in Australia who die in those particular circumstances where their organs could help others um, through donation and, you know, leading someone to have a transplant. And so the journey for families when someone comes into hospital suddenly with a life-threatening illness. They might be in the hospital for hours or days, sometimes longer. And we really um, need families to come along that journey to understand what's happened and accept that, you know, death's inevitable for the person that they love. Right. So it's this sense of not being able to necessarily have been able to to mourn and say goodbye to that person because of hospitals being so restricted in access over the pandemic? Yeah, that's right. So a lot of hospitals, um, and particularly those that were affected by prolonged lockdowns, such as uh, Victoria and New South Wales, you know, did not allow uh, for long periods of time families to come into the hospital to visit their relatives or if they did, you know, it was under very limited and restricted circumstances. And so, you know, that building of a relationship between the healthcare workers and the family, them being able to come and talk face-to-face and spend time with their relative in the intensive care unit and then be able to sort of hear and accept that dreadful news that, you know, their relative was dying, that death was inevitable, and then being a place mentally where they can actually understand that that's happened and then think, okay, you know, the conversation after that, that will be brought up is what about donation? You know, is that something that you've talked about? You know, let's check the register and see if your relative had registered. And I think 
the fact that families didn't get to come along that journey in the same way. And when they did come into hospitals, you know, they were confronted with staff who were, you know, wearing visors and masks and gowns, and they themselves had to wear masks and personal protective equipment. And the whole human interaction and communication was really, um, I think, modified in a in a negative way because of that. So that's one of the really key drivers, and it's really heartbreaking to think about the fact that that had to be a driver. The other side has to do with just the riskiness of uh, transplantation and adding that to the risk that we had for people who were the most vulnerable in hospitals during the pandemic. That's right. So deciding whether to proceed with um, transplanting an organ that becomes available to someone who needs that transplant is, you know, a a balance of of risks. And when someone receives a transplant, obviously they need to come to hospital. They, after receiving the transplants, um, the transplant receive very strong uh, medication to suppress their immune system so that their body does not uh, reject the uh, organ. And they're very vulnerable at that point to catching COVID if they do catch COVID to becoming very sick with it. So I think that the balance of the the decision to proceed or not was modified, both with individuals themselves thinking, should I just um, stay away from hospitals, remain on dialysis, or should I come into hospitals where, you know, there was a risk of being exposed to many more people and then, then be very vulnerable in that post-transplant phase. Um, and the advice they were getting from transplant people, I think, modified that that balance of risks. Helen, so you're saying the numbers are recovering, they're not back up to pre-pandemic levels. Organ donation is quite literally a matter of life and death for people who are on the transplant list. What can people be doing now at an individual level to help those numbers recover? Look, I think it's incredibly important that with donation being feasible in in such a small number of circumstances, every one of those opportunities, you know, is precious for those people in need of need of a life saving transplant. And I think we would all want that chance available to the ourselves and the people that we love. Um, yet currently only 36% of people aged 16 and above have registered to donate on the Australian Organ Donor Register. And we know when someone has registered and also told their family they want to be a donor, then when families um, are being asked about donation in those um rare circumstances where someone has died and can donate, then they know what the right decision is for their family member. And the majority of families say yes to donation under those circumstances. But if they've never talked about donation and if their family member's not registered, then only four in 10 families say yes to donation when asked. So the the big message is um, find out about donations. Say you're willing to be a donor, register on the Australian Organ Donor Register. Uh, It's very quick and easy on the donatelife.gov.au website or it's three taps on your Medicare app. Uh, And let your family know that you want to be a donor um, so that, you know, if they are sadly in that very difficult circumstance, then the decision at least about um, that aspect of the choices at end-of-life care uh, is an easier one for them. 
register your wishes, tell your family about it. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Associate Professor Helen Optum, who's the National Medical Director for the Organ and Tissue Authority. And Shelby, last week you opened our eyes to the magical world of no burpers and since then you've actually had quite a few people. We thought it was rare, but you've had quite a lot of people getting in touch. Yes. I mean, my eyes have been opened doubly now (laughs) with the amount of people who have reached out. But has your throat been opened? (laughs) Luckily, I didn't have that issue, but it turns out a lot of people do and a surprising amount of people do. So this was centred on this Reddit community who who basically crowdsourced this cure. Um, and I've actually seen a lot of people I've been spying in the background who have joined the Reddit thread specifically because they read or they listened to the story um, One person said, a lot of people said their family members had sent the article to them, so they joined the community. A lot of people looking for doctors in Australia who can treat it after reading the article. Um, A lot of people, their minds are blown. They thought that it was just them. Um, And now they're finding this community of people who have the exact same symptoms. So if you didn't hear Shelby's story from last week, you absolutely must. Just scroll back one episode in your health report feed on the ABC Listen app and listen to Shelby's story on no burpers. What's the actual proper medical name for this condition again, Shelby? It is retrograde cricopharyngeal dysfunction, RCPD, but no burpers, I think is catchier. I like that too. Well, you've got your homework to do. That's it for this week's health report. Go and listen to last week's though. I'm Tegan Taylor. I'm Shelby Trainer. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.